Say it with me. Jesus. I'm done. All right, let's just go on here. He is the message of the Scripture. He is truth. He is life. He is salvation. He is sanctification. It's all about... I really feel like I could sit down now, but then you wouldn't get what you paid for. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't work like that. Please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Galatians yet again. This is our expository walk through the summer. Uh, We are working our way, uh, one uh, verse at a time, if you will, through the book of Galatians. And the theme of the book of Galatians is that there is freedom in Jesus Christ. But what I like about the book of Galatians, as is true with all of the writings of the Apostle Paul, he doesn't just leave you in this state of, woohoo! It is for a purpose. Christ has set us free, ultimately, so that we can be involved in the lives of others with the wonderful love of God that he has already touched and worked in our hearts with. Galatians chapter 2 today, we are going to finish up what is, if you will, the personal appeal section. This is the first of the three segments that encompasses the book of Galatians. In this section, the Apostle Paul has been very, very personal. In many ways, this is the autobiographical section of his letter because he's basically saying, my gospel, he's making it very real, very personal here. My gospel is the gospel of grace. In fact, I received it from God alone, and it has changed my life, Paul said. He goes on and said, last week we considered it, I then went on to defend the message of the gospel of grace in Jerusalem with the mother church, with those who are apostles, and they affirmed it. Today we're going to move into this section, the concluding section of this this, uh, experiential part of Paul's letter, where he says this, and then I went on to defend the message of the gospel of grace in the church at Antioch against a hypocritical Apostle Peter. And so what we talked about last week was basically that Paul had traveled down to the city of Jerusalem, down to the mother church, where he defended the message of the gospel of grace. Today we're going to see how Paul now defends the lifestyle of the gospel of grace. You see, the gospel is not something we simply believe to be saved But in a very real way, we have been saved to live out the message of grace in and through our lives. So that's what we're going to consider together today. Now, normally what I do is I kind of throw up the big portion of Scripture, 11 through 22, uh, 21, and, and then normally we read it through and then we start to dissect it to save ourselves a little bit of time and so I can get to where I'd like to go this morning with you. Uh, I am going to pray right now, ask you to join me, and ask for God's help in our time. And and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to dissect it as we read it. And so the goal would be to read it with comprehension, to read it with a sense of understanding. So we'll try that method today. You let me know if that works. Just before I pray, however, I was just reminded down front here a few moments ago that, by the way, there is a burger and hot dog and fries uh, youth fundraiser going on after this service. So if you're hungry, and you will be by the end of this message, trust me, because I've got something to make you hungry, um, um, you will want to stop out there and help the youth uh, by uh, purchasing one of those meals. There, that's the commercial. Let's pray. 
<sighs> Jesus. There is something about that name. Wonderful Savior. Thank you, Jesus. And we come into your presence right now only because you, through your sacrifice, have made that possible. Father, thank you for your Son. Dear Holy Spirit, thank you for living inside of us as we embrace Christ to live out that Christ life. I pray today, O oh God, that as we look at this portion of Scripture that you've preserved for us to have now, that you would find ways, O oh God, to make it real and practical in our lives and in our experience. Jesus, thank you. In your name I pray. Again, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to take them and to follow along there if you can't see this itty-bitty tiny text. How many can see the text in the back? In the back? Eh, not so much. Okay, some of you can, some of you can't. Obviously, some of you need to visit the eye doctor. That's okay. That's just kind of a, a seeing test here. Um, but if you have your Bibles, then you can simply follow along. So what I'm going to do is in verses 11 and 12, the first two verses, I'm going to read them through, and those verses will give us context for what's about to follow. And so in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2, it says this, But when Cephas, who is also known as Peter, the apostle Peter, came to the church in Antioch, which is actually Antioch in Syria, I, Paul, opposed him, Peter, to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Well, to gain context from that reading, let me break it apart and let's kind of invest it with a little bit of knowledge. So when he says, but when Cephas came uh, to Antioch, so Peter comes from, the, southern, from the, the mother church in Jerusalem, comes north to Antioch in Syria, and he comes to a Gentile church where Paul and Barnabas had been ministering. So along comes Peter. Now the question is, when did this episode take place? When did uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 happen? And I think it'll help us to appreciate something, so let me walk through this just for a second. I believe that this passage fits best in the chronology of the book of Acts by, first of all, understanding the placement Paul has given it here in the book of Galatians. We can assume that it happened after the private meeting in Jerusalem that we looked at last week, which was given rise from a famine relief effort that we discovered in Acts chapter 11 when Agabus, the prophet, said that a famine was coming. And so the church in Antioch said, oh, well, let's go down to our brothers in Jerusalem and bring them some relief. Paul used that mercy mission as an opportunity to express his message of the gospel of grace and to get the apostles on board. So we know that it happened after Acts chapter 11. What else we know also is that it happened prior to Acts chapter 15. Because in Acts chapter 15, we have a remarkable gathering called the Jerusalem Council, which dealt with exactly the issues that are at rise here in the book of Galatians. And so if Galatians was, was written after this huge council that took place in Jerusalem with all the primaries in place, then Paul no doubt would have referenced that conference when he wrote Galatians if he wrote it after. He doesn't reference it, reference it so we believe that he wrote it earlier than Acts chapter 15. 
So it was after Acts chapter 11 this episode happened, and it was prior to Acts chapter 15. I believe it took place in Acts chapter 14, and I believe it happened at the very end of the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on. Paul and Barnabas were sent out of the church in Antioch of Syria, and they went and they journeyed along, and they founded these churches in southern Galatia, modern-day Turkey. After they founded these churches, to which the letter of Galatians is written, they made their way back to Antioch in Syria, where it says this in Acts chapter 14, uh, in verses, verses 27 and 28. It says this, And when they, Paul and Barnabas, arrived back in Antioch of Syria to give a report of their first journey, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how God had opened doors of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. So this is when I believe Peter had come up from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch of Syria. And you're saying, okay. What's the big deal? Why do we really care when this episode took place? Well, let me say it this way. That means that Acts chapter 10 has already taken place where Peter received divine revelation that the Gentiles were going to be included in God's family when he met Cornelius. That means that Acts chapter 11, which we looked at last week in this section of Galatians 2, actually already happened, and Peter had affirmed the message of the gospel of grace along with James and John in Jerusalem. I believe that he could have very well have been present when this report was given, and so Peter could have heard and saw how the Gentiles were now being brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Which means this, I want you to appreciate that the Apostle Peter had affirmed and embraced the message of the gospel of grace. And that he was now without excuse for what he was about to do, and the Apostle Paul was fully justified in what he did. This is how it continues on to read. And so it says this, I, Paul, opposed him. Peter, to his face even, right face to face. I didn't say this behind his back. I didn't get in a corner and whisper it to others. I publicly called him down because he stood condemned. The word condemned means to stand before God's judgment seat and to have the gavel drop as guilty. This is a pretty serious allegation that is being held against Peter because it says this, for certain men came from James. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. These were Jews. But before they came, Peter was actively eating with the Gentiles. So what this means is, Peter, an austere Jew, who would have nothing to do with the Gentiles, let alone eat with them, because their dietary laws were not what would honor God in the Mosaic law, what Peter was doing is this. He was affirming the message of the gospel of grace now with his actions because he was now sitting down and eating with Jew, uh, with Gentiles. Which means that he understood that it was by faith through grace uh, in Christ alone that the Gentiles were brought to Jesus, just as it was by faith through grace alone for the Jews to be brought to Jesus. So he was affirming that God had torn down the wall which separated the Jews and the Gentiles, and he was making one people with them. 
So he was now eating with the Gentiles, and he was affirming the truth of the message of the gospel of grace. And what benefits there were to this. You see, the writings of the Mosaic Law, as well as the multitude of interpretations, prevented a good Jew from eating the greatest meat on God's green earth. Ham. Pig. You know, uh, so Peter sat down with the Gentiles, and he was enjoying his newfound liberties found in Jesus Christ. This is known as the Triple Hog Dare. It is part of a new menu that's recently come out at Applebee's, which is kind of my home away from home. When I'm not having a meeting in my office, I'm meeting at Applebee's. And so I have yet to eat this. I have had several offers from the first service to go with me to eat one of these. So if you want to join us, I'm sure we can make a a whole affair. But what we have here is we have pulled pork wrapped in bacon, wrapped in ham, uh, with a few uh, onion straws added for effect. And so this is something that Peter can now actively enjoy because Christ had come, the Mosaic Law had been done away with, and he was actively enjoying the benefits of what Jesus had done. And he was grouping with the Gentiles, and he was saying, this is awesome. Look what God has done. He's made one new people, and I get to eat pork. Woo! So this is is what was going on. This is all good. This is good. However... However, we are told according to the situation that before certain men came from James, he was actively eating with Gentiles. By the way, the word eating there is actually in the imperfect tense, which means he had now had the habit. He was now actively eating with them. He was, he was moving into that area where he was affirming the message of the gospel of grace. But I want you to notice what happens. But when they came, When those Jews, Jewish Christians, came from uh, Jerusalem, he, Peter, drew back. The word drew back actually means to have a strategic uh, withdrawal. He he, he planned this out very carefully. He, he He tried to find a way where he wouldn't be too obvious, but he was now pulling himself back from this situation. It was a carefully planned tactical retreat, and he separated himself. So Peter was actively sitting there and enjoying the triple hog dare sandwich with all these wonderful Gentile believers, having a great time, when all of a sudden he looks up and he sees somebody that knows him, that would look down their nose on him for doing such activity. In fact, a group of Jews had come up from James, and so he carefully pushes back, he sets down the triple hog dare And I'm sure he's just drooling because he has to let it go. And so he pushes back. He walks around the Gentiles. And Peter goes to the salad bar. And he picks up the pita bread. And he's trying to look natural. (whistles) Oh, hey, hey there, Bartholomew. Hey, how are you doing, man? It's good to see you here. I didn't notice you come in. Trying to act totally natural, trying to feel totally like, hey, this is cool, I'm great, how are you? But we're told the reason why he did all this is because of peer pressure. It says that he was fearing the circumcision party. And so this is the context that we are given. 
Peter was eating together with the Gentiles. He was affirming and living the message of the gospel of grace that the wall of the Mosaic law that separated the Jews and Gentiles had been torn down through Jesus' sacrifice. And now he's playing the hypocrite. So that was the context in verses um, 11 and 12. But now I want you to notice the concern in verse 13. So he, he draws back, and it says, and the rest of the Jews... The other Jews who were there with Peter originally and eating with the Gentiles, affirming this new thing in Jesus, all of them start to follow Peter's lead. And so they're all quietly going over to the salad bar, and all the Gentiles are sitting over there with the, the pork. And so we have a division happening right there. In fact, this was so bad that even Barnabas was going to join this retreat. And now Barnabas was one of the leaders in the church at Antioch. He was the guy that just had come back on the missionary journey with Paul where he saw God do all these amazing things. So Peter, because of his reputation, because he was one of the big guys, when he made this move, everybody was following his move. And Paul says in the next verse, and he said, and I saw them. So Paul is standing there in this banquet area at this church. Maybe it was the fellowship hall. Probably not. I don't think they had full-size buildings back in those days. They were more house churches. But they had, Paul was witnessing this whole thing play out. And he called them, what's the word? Hypocrites. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Play acting. A charade. Peter claimed one thing, but his actions were now saying something else. He claimed to believe the message of the gospel of grace, but now he was betraying that message by the way he was treating the Gentiles. And others were beginning to follow his lead. And that gives rise to the confrontation that we find in verse 14. Notice what it goes on to say. But when I, Paul, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. If you have your Bible, underline that phrase. If you have your Bible, underline that phrase. It is a key phrase as we continue to develop this text. I, I saw, said Paul, that their conduct, the way in which they were now acting, was not in step. It was not congruous uh, with the message of the gospel of grace. It was discongruent. They were now acting in a way that was other than the message of grace. And I said to Cephas, Paul, or Peter, before them all. And what he said was, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you now force the Gentiles to live like Jews? you got to understand, this was a public setting. These were big wigs. There were all kinds of people. This is Peter we're talking about. This is Peter. He walked with Jesus for three years on this earth. He, he was Peter. And here is Paul. And he points across the room at Peter, who had skulked around there to get to the salad bar, and he declares out loud for everybody, Peter, if you... Though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you now force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He could have heard a pin drop. 
called him out. Paul publicly, publicly denounced and confronted Peter. And by the way, he told all those Jews who had just come up from Jerusalem exactly what Peter had been doing. He's been living like a Gentile. He's been living like a Gentile. You know, Peter has the name Peter um, because Jesus gave it to him. And you shall be called Peter, which means the rock. And so here is the rock looking for a rock to hide under. He is so publicly exposed at this moment, I can imagine the tension in the room. You know, we we look at this episode and we think to ourselves, you know, Paul, you went way overboard, man. Um, Who are you to judge somebody else? We live in a day and age today where the concept of judging someone calling someone out for behavior that's inconsistent is is anathema. You know, Paul said, if you mess with the gospel of grace, you're anathema. But today, if if you say anybody's not doing anything that's okay because they want to do it, you're now considered anathema. you, You just don't judge people. So let me ask you, is it okay to judge people? That was an awkward... We're not too sure. Um, you know, what some of you are thinking of is the words of Jesus, right? I mean, they're raised on every time there's a, a, a TV show, a, a news program dedicated to gospel or truth. Somebody always pulls this up. Jesus says you're not allowed to judge. They, they do. They do. And you know what? It sounds like that, too. You look in judge, uh, Judges. <laughs> it's judging. No. You look in Matthew chapter 7, and it says this. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Well, it sounds like Jesus is saying you, you aren't allowed to judge. For with the judgment you pronounce, Paul was pronouncing pretty strong judgment against Peter, with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so there it looks like, oh my gosh, you know, you better not say anything because Jesus said don't judge lest you be judged. So judging's wrong, right? Judging is wrong, right? Jesus actually goes on to give some qualifiers to that statement. When he goes on to make this statement, right after that, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, which is a way of saying, let me, let me judge your life. Let me, let me speak into your world. Let me tell you something that I see that's inconsistent in your life. When there is a log sticking out of your own eye. This is funny stuff. This is just an, a bizarre image, you know? You hypocrite. But Jesus goes on to say this. First, you need to take the log out of your own eye. And then you can clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what Jesus is saying is this. If you're going to call somebody out, if you're going to hold somebody accountable, if you're going to call somebody down, first you need to analyze your own heart and life and attitudes and make sure that you are consistently living what you're going to say to someone else that they should be doing. And so the idea of judging is that it's not that we shouldn't judge, but it is that our lives should be in a place where we can appropriately speak into other people's lives without them saying, well, who do you think you are? Look what you're doing. 
So the idea of judging is a biblical concept. In fact, repeatedly throughout the scriptures, it does talk about judging. But we're not called to judge anybody or everybody. That's another part of this. So the idea is, is that we have actively asked God beforehand, Lord, is there something in my life that needs to be dealt with? And if there is, we deal with it. But the other side of the issue is this. We're not allowed to simply judge anyone. Uh, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside of the church who we are to be judging? Now, the word judging always sounds like such a negative term. It actually can have the idea of, of, of encouraging to build up in the ways of Christ some accountability and if necessary rebuke. But the idea is, is that we're not allowed to do this to the people outside of the church. We are called to hold one another accountable in Christ to live the Christ life. And yet what often seems to happen is the church with big mouth yells, you're doing it wrong. I want to give you a piece of biblical truth. This is probably a revelation to some of you. Sinners sin. So outside of the church, without any personal relationship with Jesus Christ, people naturally do what comes to them. And we are depraved people, so they're naturally doing the things that go with that kind of a lifestyle because that's what happens. We're not called to judge that. We're called in community with one another, and I believe the small group community is the best place to carry this out. We're called to encourage or edify, build one another up in the faith in Christ and bring accountability to bear to help us walk this path. And if necessary, if there's no repentance for wrong, we are to rebuke. But it's only for believers that we are called to judge, not those outside of the church. So this is the biblical framework, and so this is what Paul is doing. Paul is calling out Peter publicly because his sin was a public sin. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Do not admit a charge against an elder, Peter was an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, everybody was watching this happen. As for those who persist in their sin, you are to rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest will stand in fear. And so Peter, or Paul, was doing something scriptural, something biblical. He was calling out a brother in Jesus Christ for the inconsistency in his life when it comes to the message of the gospel of grace. When the gospel of grace is at stake, whether it is by legalism, as it is here in uh, Galatians chapter 2, or by licentiousness, by that I mean immorality or shameless behavior, as it was true in the Corinthian church, it must be dealt with. Why? Why? Because it distorts the message of the gospel of grace. You see, we can preach a false gospel without ever saying a word. And here is Peter, and the fascinating thing about this whole section is Paul never records one word spoken by Peter. 
but he shows that through his actions, he is preaching a false gospel without even opening his mouth. And you know, we all are in danger of that. We all have that potential to to embrace Jesus Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and receive eternal life, the gift of Christ himself. And then we can actually err in one of two ways. On the one hand, we can begin to gravitate towards legalism. This is what was happening here. This is the problem. It's it's shown up in the book of Galatians chapter 2, but the whole book actually deals with the problem uh, of legalism. So on the one hand, we can begin to walk in the paths or the lifestyle of legalism, which denies the reality of depravity and leads to pride in our lives. We can begin to become critical and condescending of other people, wondering, why is it that people are not growing up? When are they going to start to act a lot more like me? You see, that's a tendency we all have. Legalism is that subtle sin that makes us feel superior to others. But when we get it in our hearts and minds that somehow we're better than them, and we may not say it with so many words, but we actually show it through our actions. When we start to live like that, what we're doing is we're distorting the message of the gospel of grace. Because the gospel of grace, grace means unmerited favor. Grace means uh, unearned, un, 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 um. That's a good word. Undeserved. Absolutely undeserved. When you get a hold of grace and understand it, it's meant to change everything about you. Grace changes everything. Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody take credit and take away from God, which God alone deserves the glory for the cross work of Christ. And so the idea that somehow we can look at other people and feel better than them, or, or by, by, by belittling them and making them less than us, we don't understand the cross. Because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We can feel no better than anyone, believer or unbeliever. Because it's all by grace that we even found Jesus. We can take no credit for this. And because it's all of God's goodness, who are we to say, I'm better than you? That doesn't understand grace. Peter, the Gentiles are saved the same way you are. What do you think you're doing? You're acting like you're better than them. And what you're doing is you are distorting the message. Somebody made a little ditty, a little song many, many years ago that I... I liked it, and I've never forgot it. I think I've used it here in the past. But it, it goes something like this. 
I am what I am by the grace of God, by the grace of God so free. I am what I am by the grace of God for time and eternity. I've been saved by grace, I'm kept by grace, and it's by his grace, his face, I'll see. I am what I am by the grace of God for time and eternity. Solely on the basis of God's favor, unearned, undeserved, I am a child of God. Who am I to think that I am any better than anyone else? The moment we start to think that and act like that, we have now distorted the message of grace with our pride. Because look at me. Why aren't you more like me? Doesn't work like that. Not supposed to work like that. And all of us are susceptible to move in in paths like that. So on the one hand, we can be slipping into legalism. On the other hand, though, we can slip into licentiousness, immorality, or shamelessness in behavior. And it can, because licentiousness basically is this it denies the need for holiness, and it leads to a life of presumption that mocks God's grace. I'm free in Jesus! Woohoo! Therefore, I can live any way I want, and I'm forgiven, right? I'll let you listen to the words of Paul. You tell me what you think. This is what Paul said. Galatians, or Galatians, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The Apostle Paul's words in Galatians, or <laughs> Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 are these. By no means. No. In fact, the Greek construction there is the strongest negative construction that can be made in the Greek language. Ooh, may, no way, literally. A double negative is the strongest negative you can give. And so he's saying this, is it okay to live in sin that grace will abound? I can do anything I want because I'm forgiven. No. This is Paul, not me. No. How can we who have died to sin live in it? How can we continue to live in sin? We don't understand grace if we do this. You see, this becomes a misunderstanding in a misrepresentation of God's grace. That's presumption, not grace. Titus 2, 11 through 13. Do we have any Iwana workers here? Iwana workers, there's one, there's two, there's a few. Uh, right after I came into relationship with Jesus Christ, I was 21 years old. I went to church when I was 22 years old. I'm a new guy. Had no clue what's up other than I love Jesus. And I walk into uh, South Paris Baptist Church, and they said, ooh, it's important for believers to be serving, so let us help you serve. Oh, okay. I'll do anything you want. I love Jesus. So they put me in the Awana program as a listener. And so the first verses that I learned in Awana were Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. And these verses speak to the reality of what grace really is. It says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Grace trains us. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we are to live soberly. That means with self-control, righteously. That means in accordance with God's word. And godly in this present world looking for the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the grace that saves us, humbles us, and trains us to live and to love like Jesus. 
a grace that merely can be taken and chunked alongside and said, now I've got my ticket to hell or heaven, sorry. <laughs> now that I've got my ticket to heaven, I'm good to go. I can live any way I want. Let me just say that Jesus is not an insurance salesman. Did I say this last week? I think I did, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus is not an insurance salesman. He doesn't give out insurance to get you out of hell. He is the Lord, and he calls you into relationship with him. And thus, in relationship with him, we learn to walk with him, and we learn to take on the character of him. So, by all means, all of us have the potential to stray off into legalism, to get prideful and think we're better than others, or we can stray off into licentiousness and live in sin and and, and think it's okay. But both of those are errors, Because living a lifestyle that is either legalistic or filled with licentiousness is a perversion of the message of the gospel of grace of which Peter was now being called down on. I, Paul, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you now force the Gentiles to live like? What do you think you're doing, Peter? What do you think you're doing? Your actions are not lining up with the truth of the message of the gospel of grace. So this is the counsel that was given. No, let me me now move on to this last section here, verses 15 through the end. I'm going to read through them very quickly. I'm just going to try to get some comprehension, and then we're going to close uh, with a thought. So now we move on to his counsel. And so we, he says in verse 15, we ourselves, Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, a Gentile, is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Jews by birth, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. Because by the works of law, No one, no one will be declared righteous or justified before God. Jews and Gentiles are both saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's what he's saying to Peter. And if that's true, Peter, if that's true, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Now, I think this is what this means. Not everybody's sure exactly what he's saying, but it could mean something like this. Peter, if we are enjoying this freedom in Christ, and we are eating with Gentiles, and in walks the James gang, and they see you, and they accuse you of sin, let me ask you something, Peter. Did Jesus make you sin? Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, Peter. It doesn't work like that. Do you really want to know what's sinful, Peter? This is sinful. If I build again that which I have torn down, when I erect again the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, it is then that I prove myself to be a true transgressor. Oh, listen to me, Peter, and you, and you who would create divisions in the body of Christ, verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, Peter, here's the key. I Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, Paul, who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. 
Uh, I live in the flesh, and I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God like you're doing, Peter. For if righteousness were to come through the law, then Jesus Christ died for absolutely no purpose at all. All in vain. The Apostle Paul is defending the message of the gospel of grace against hypocritical behavior. And he is zoning in on Peter, the apostle Peter, and he is calling him out because he is living inconsistent with the message. And so if you want to know exactly what Paul is saying to him in the key to living a life that is neither a life of legalism nor a life of licentiousness, but a life that accords with the message of the gospel of grace, which is a life of love. The gospel of grace calls us to live grateful lives of selfless love in the lives of others. That's a gospel lifestyle. He's basically saying this. I have been crucified with Christ. If you're here today and you struggle with being critical, if you struggle with an attitude that has a tendency to look down on others or belittle them, if you somehow think that you are better than other people, then what you need to do is you need to come to the cross. I have been crucified with Christ because the cure for legalism, the cure for legalism is the cross. It is the cross that reminds us that I am nothing more than a sinner who deserves to be judged and condemned, but the Son of God in his love for me took my punishment, and there on the cross he set me free. I don't deserve it, but he gave it. If you struggle with legalism, I have been crucified with Christ. If you struggle with sin, licentiousness, immorality, behavior that you know is inconsistent with the message of the gospel of grace, you need to come to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see that sin has been dealt with. That I don't have to live in it anymore because I have been crucified with Christ. When he died on the cross, I died with him and my old man is now dead. And that which used to hold me in its sway, that which used to control me, has now been dealt with by the cross of Christ. So whether it's, it's license or licentiousness or legalism, the cross is the cure for both. And if we want to learn to walk in love, we need to come back to the cross. That's the key. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Peter. Not anymore. But it's Christ who lives in me. So what he's saying is this, and what we need to walk away with today is this. My life is no longer about me. My life is no longer about me. Christ died for me. I died with him. Christ is now the one who indwells me, and Christ is my life. In fact, Paul said that in another place in his writings he goes christ is our life and so he says i have i am my life is no longer about me peter it's about it's about it's about here's a hint it's about (laughs) see i told you the very beginning jesus all the words i just said didn't even need to be said because there's the solution that he was seeking to hit home with Peter. You see, Peter, the reason why your life is inconsistent is because you think it's about you. The reason why you're having trouble walking in a way that you know honors God is because you still think it's about you. 
You think somehow Jesus died to help you get your plans done in your life. You don't understand. He died to dwell indwell you so that he could live out his life through you. To live and to love like Jesus and to help others to do the same. You see, Peter, my life is no longer about me. It's about Jesus. I'm going to allow, uh, allow, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to play out uh, a video. And uh, at the end of it, I'll have three words and a word of prayer. But this video, to me, speaks to the reality of our day. The early church had Jesus. And that's all they had. I wonder if that was enough. You be the judge as to whether or not it played out well in the early church. Uh, Here's some words by a man of God by the name of Jim Simbala, who is the pastor at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Listen to these, and then I'll close this with prayer. The hardest thing in the world right now is to see a soul get saved and be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Bible studies, gathering people to study the Bible, all important, but that's not that hard. Doing praise and worship, that's great, but that's not the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing in the world we live in right now is to meet the guy smoking weed three, four times a week, or the guy strung out or girl on oxycodone, or a proud person who doesn't feel their need of God because of all the money they make. I don't care what the lifestyle is. The hardest challenge for us is to see what happened in the early church. The gospel preached and multitudes turning to the Lord. That's how the church in Antioch in Syria, where all the killing is going on right now, was founded. The Bible says that certain men from Cyprus and Cyrene went there and the hand of the Lord was with them and multitudes turned to the Lord. Imagine, no New Testament. Couldn't hand out anything to the folks. Roman Empire against them. The Jewish religious establishment against them. Persecuted, on the run, and they turned the world upside down. No church buildings for 300 years. No seminaries, no Bible schools. But they remembered what the Lord said before he left, which is, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That is the only antidote to the problem. Political answers are just... It's unthinkable that anybody could believe that's where the answer is. Moses got a law given by God's own hand written on stone. It didn't change one person. Through the law only comes the knowledge of sin. The law can't change anyone. Only Christ can change people. He is our life. The hour's too late just to have church. I'm tired of church. Predictable church. Same old, faithful, whatever. Some leave one church, come to another. The Lord has entrusted us to spread the gospel so that other people that he died for could be saved and come to a knowledge of salvation through Christ. We've been left here to spread the good news. Now let's talk about how we can do that. And don't say it can't be done. It can be done. For with God, nothing is impossible. I don't care what's going on in the government. Nothing's too hard for Jesus Christ. Nothing. The Roman Empire was no moral uh, example for anything. You had horrible emperors like... 
Claudius and Tiberius and worse, Caligula and Nero. Those were the guys in charge, worshipped as God, while the apostles were preaching the gospel. They never complained about it. They never said, oh, what a horrible thing this Roman Empire is. They said, no, he told us what to do. Let's do it. He said when we do it, he would help us do it. And with that simple focus, they got such incredible results. Why why aren't more souls being won? What does it take? What do we have to change? First thing we need is you got to want to win souls because you love people. The biggest requirement to win souls to Christ is that you love them and you want to see them come to the faith and you don't see them as an enemy. The so-called culture wars have brought havoc to the Christian church because we don't see Muslims and and, and other people who have anti-Christ uh, uh, lifestyles or anti-Bible lifestyles. What's happened now is we see them as the enemy. We don't weep over them. We're angry with them. Where would you find that in the New Testament? Jesus wept over the city that was going to kill him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you. I wanted you to come to me. That's why I'm weeping. But you wouldn't. But he was weeping. No matter how people live, Christ died for them. God loves them. I meet pastors all the time that they don't want certain people who are other in their church. They want to build a nice place for the family. Well, that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about getting a nice place for your family. It's about having the Holy Ghost hospital. And that's how the New Testament looked at it. There was nobody who was untouchable. Just like Jesus touched lepers with his own hand, which was unthinkable in that day. The early apostles went out and preached the good news to everybody. Jew, then Gentile, male, female, young, old. It didn't matter. But you and I, brothers and sisters, do we see the world the way Jesus sees it? Do we feel what he feels? Or are we seeing it through the lens of the culture that we were raised in? And we need a new baptism of the love of God in our hearts. Now Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You got to have love. You got to have proper motivation from God. You got to see things the way God sees it. But after that, no converts are going to be made unless you preach the gospel. Listen to Paul's words. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The power is in the gospel. The good news about Jesus. But here's the problem. I would suggest to you, given the state of affairs in our country, that it's hard to argue against this statement. We must not be preaching the gospel that they preached. Because the Bible says, not not, it's the power of God only in a certain environment. No, it doesn't matter how dark the, the, the spiritual climate is, the gospel will break through. It has power. But what gospel? Why don't you read carefully every sermon in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 3, another Peter's sermon. Chapter 10, Peter at Cornelius' house. The Gentiles get saved. Paul in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch. And then on again, Paul's travels and his preaching. His uh, talk to the uh, Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts uh, 20. And then later on when he, they almost kill him in Jerusalem. And a crowd gathers and he says, may I speak to the crowd? And the Roman soldiers let him. Study every sentence. Look at the subject, look at the verb, and look at the object of every sentence. That gospel, that's the one that they preach. Not join our church gospel. 
Not five-point Calvinism gospel. Not my denomination is the best gospel. Not right-wing American conservative Fox News gospel. Not a black culture gospel. Not left liberal gospel. There's only one gospel of Jesus Christ. That gospel has Bible, but let's learn the truth as it is in Jesus. Let's get to Jesus. He is our life. We need our churches to explode with God-blessed evangelism, preaching the gospel. I want to see Jesus glorified. Let's die to all other fake answers, politics, and social stuff, and, and all of that. Let's help people and do everything we can. But that's not how the church was born. The church was born with an all-out devotion to the good news of Jesus. Men and women filled with love, sharing the good news of Jesus. Helped through the power of the Holy Spirit. The early church simply had the truth of the gospel of grace that changed their lives and the indwelling Jesus who loved others through them. That's all. That's all they had. They didn't have buildings, they didn't have Bibles, and they didn't have budgets, but they had Jesus. Jesus. His love and his life-changing truth that they personally had experienced. That's all that they had, and that was all that they needed. And can I just say in our day and age of all the things that seem to make up the church today, the one thing that seems to get overlooked is Jesus. And Jesus always was and always will be enough. We do not need buildings. We do not need budgets. We don't even need to have Bibles to hand out, though by God's grace we have them today. Love and the life-changing truth transformed Rome. It can work again. My life is no longer about me. It's about Let's pray. Father, um, wow. I pray that as we walk out of here today,